This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Andreas Vidmar, an entrepreneur, professor, consultant, business coach, speaker, and author. Andreas has 30 years experience in international business strategy, economic development, and entrepreneurship. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Andreas discuss language, sports, and Andreas's time as a Swiss guard for Pope St. John Paul II. They also touch on poverty, distinguishing between material poverty and other ways people are impoverished, especially in the U.S. Andreas shares wisdom he's gained from his years of business experience and how he's using that to teach his students at the Catholic University of America. The Tivoglio Ben, if you're a Catholic, if you're a Christian entrepreneur or, or boss or manager or CEO, and you say to your employee, Tivoglio Bene, I want your good, then the good you want them is on the one hand, you reach excellence and do and, and create good value for your customers. On the other hand, you want them to become holy because you want them to create goods that are truly good, to provide services that truly serve, and so imitate God, even if they don't know it. This is Living the Call. Andreas Widmer, welcome to the show. Hi, Deacon Charlie. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming, but I'm happy to be here, and, and it's an honor. I was going to say, Guten Tag, mein Herr. Guten Tag, mein Herr. Yeah. Or, or in your case, I could also say, Buongiorno, Bonjour. Can I say, can I say, Buenos Dias, or have you, how's your Spanish? Yeah, my wife is Hispanic, so we they speak Spanish at home, and I participate in my French, Italian, Spanish hybrid. And um, yeah, and then you you can't forget the Swiss. In Switzerland, you say hello by saying Grüezi. Grüezi. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. But you do speak yeah. German, though, just on just. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah High yeah. German is a foreign language for me, but it's I, I'm Swiss is a Germanic language. Of course. Uh, but but you have to learn the high German because, you know, the, a, do you know, a German person will not understand when I speak with my family. So hmm. a, a German speaker doesn't speak. Like doesn't a native German speaker. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, I was going to ask that. So in like, I'm a big soccer fan. Okay. And mm -hmm. international soccer, especially every four years, you know, with the world cup yeah. and the qualifiers and all of that stuff. And I love languages. I'm not as adept at them as you are, but I, 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 I just love the idea of languages. And I oftentimes think about when people are, when the teams are on the pitch, the national teams, how do they, in these countries that have these sort of multilingual backgrounds, what language or some or what hybrid do they generally communicate in? Like, so for instance, one is Holland, right? In Holland, you got Flemish, you got Dutch, you got all this stuff. In Switzerland, you've also got Italian and what this sort of German, French and French Latin. and Latin. Yeah. so. Okay, so on the Swiss national team, what language are they speaking to one another? So, of course, I've never played on the Swiss national team. I wish, <laughs> but I give you the comparison. So, but I've been in the Swiss military. And the rule in Switzerland is this, that you speak whatever language of where you're at. So if you're in a Francophone area, we call them the Welsh area, it's mm -hmm. funny, then you speak French. So I went to, to military in Fribourg, which is in the, in the French-speaking part. Mm -hmm. And so my entire military service, uh, recruit school and officer school were both were entirely in French. And then if you would go south to the Ticino, then you would, as soon as you speak, you step in there, you speak Italian. And so it is uh, with the Swiss German. So 
I would assume it has to do with where they uh, where they play. Okay, but but in the in the context of World Cup, the World Cup might be in South Africa or in Asia. Oh, you, I thought you meant amongst themselves. Yeah, yeah. amongst themselves and on the on pitch, the team. on the pitch, yeah. like in the middle of a game. If they're playing in Saudi Arabia, what, how yeah. does a Swiss national team communicate with each other? Probably in in Swiss or Swiss German, uh, Swiss uh, French or Swiss German. Probably. Yeah, and everybody there would speak both, so it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter because they pick up on it. Yeah, that's fascinating. They, you know, they speak both of it. Yeah. I, I don't know how you feel. I doubt that it's a, it's an Italian, uh, but I bet you it's a mix between um, French, Swiss, German, and English. Well, in any case, it's a huge advantage with multilingual uh, athletes because yeah. most of the time the refs are not from the country that is overseeing the game, and, and so they probably speak yeah. English in that case. They probably speak English, and I'll have you know, Deacon Charlie, that my favorite player from Switzerland, it's actually the best Swiss player, is playing currently in the United States. He was at Liverpool when they won their championship, although it's debatable how, how much he had to do with this, but anyway, uh, and he's now playing for Chicago, hmm. and his name is uh, Shakiri. Oh, yeah, of course, Shakiri. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's the best Swiss player, and he, he's like the game maker in, when at the World Cup, when we're at the World Cup. Um, and so now, because I live in D.C., they're in the same league, and so Shakiri comes to D.C. like at least twice a year to play, and we always go watch him. So. Yeah, for sure. He's a, a midfielder, correct, I think? Um, yeah, he's the playmaker of the whole thing. He is, yeah, the kind of the vision. Interestingly, Shakiri, though, is that – what provenance is that? It's not Italian, is it? No, no. Yeah. Shakiri is from the Kosovo. There's a long story about this. He's actually, his parents were refugees during the whole crisis uh, in the former Yugoslavia and where his dad was in prison and there's all kinds of political st stuff that comes along with it. But he grew up like a Swiss kid in, this, in the city and was into sports and he speaks, I mean, he speaks perfect uh, Swiss and everything. But went, you know, became very big with the with Basel, uh, with the football club in Basel, which is the sure. best football club in Switzerland. And then from there went into Germany, and then eventually Liverpool, and then France, I think Lyon or something, and then yeah. he jumped over to the U.S. It's amazing how these these uh, clubs, these European clubs, can become, and the national team too, can become these great platforms. Because the only reason I know Shakiri, I don't follow Swiss football, but mm -hmm. is because of the World Cup. Because not this yeah. last time, but probably the previous time, he was you know the, sort of the playmaker for the Swiss team, and you have these sort of yeah. standouts, right? That's and that was my yeah. childhood, getting to know to the I extent to the extent that I knew these cultures. I know them principally through you know players, right? Uh, yeah. Whether they're Dutch or German, I totally connect to that. I totally connect to that. You know, I've been in America for. I don't know what happened. Well, I arrived here in 1989. So I've been in America for a long time. I still have to. Sports is something that you learn, like some of your comfort foods as a mm. child. And I'm still all about soccer. Yeah. So I, I, I can't understand football. I'm, I, baseball, I go, I go see baseball only for the beer and the hot dogs, though. And um, and basketball I played, but it's not something I follow to a large extent. But soccer is yeah paramount. It's an amazing. There's a book, um, how soccer explains the world. Have you ever heard this? Yeah, book? 
Yeah, yeah, I actually met the guy who wrote that. Are you kidding? Yeah. Oh, that's, I just saw yeah. him. I just I have the book. I've never I've never met the guy, but I just saw him yeah. recently in a um, Beckham, a David Beckham documentary that's on Netflix. And that book gets as close. There's another book, similarly, totally different topic on the Basque region and the Basque people <laughs> and how the Basque are in, in a way this sort of um, idiosyncratic people that nobody really understands. And yet how their stuff is sort of everywhere and the Basque diaspora is everywhere. Similarly, this book, um, How Soccer or Football Explains the World, does something the same way, right? There's like the sense of this thing is bigger than just mm-hmm. the game, the athletes, the scoreline. Yeah. This is a culture. It's a, it's a global ecosystem. It's a unifier. I mean, the crazy thing about soccer in a world that increasingly is becoming less religious is like you, you look at things that actually unify people, especially across borders. That's one. Mm-hmm. And it it creates, of course, it creates negative things as well with the hooligans and all that. And they have a problem with that in Switzerland. In in America, that's the beauty is sport is not a, is not associated with hooligans and and uh, you know raising a ruckus. Where in my hometown of Lucerne, they have to get the riot police every time there's a game. Mm. So, so there is that. Just yeah. like it came from England, and and it just that's a part of it that is ugly. The World Cup doesn't have it. And so it's it's a lot of fun to watch the Euro Cup or the World Cup or the South America's or the America's Cup. Yep. Is, uh, so that's a negative side. But I think the core of soccer is one of bringing people together and it's a team sport. And it's just good fun to have pride in your in your team. I think part of it is also the simplicity of the game itself. You mentioned baseball and football. I mean, these games have tremendous amount of overhead right? Tremendous amount of friction. You've got special equipment, you've got pads, you've got techniques, you've got all this other stuff. With soccer, it's the simplicity that actually leads to that sort of elegance of the game. In, in, you know, in Brazil, they call it uh, Jogo Jogo Bonito, right? The beautiful game. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea is, my view, is that it's based principally because of its simplicity. I went to, um, the first time I I ever visited Africa was in West Africa in um, Mm -hmm. the country of Ghana. I don't know if you've ever been yeah. to, to West Africa, but yeah, um, many times. But I, I was blown away by by the game in that context yeah. because a lot of these kids, first of all, there's a game going on in every little town, right? <laughs> it's like a dirt patch. And these kids would take um, like rags and create balls out of them or yeah. sometimes, sadly, uh, perhaps because of too much Chinese influence in Africa now, but plastic, plastic bags, yeah. you know, and they'd assemble them um, into this like, you know, little sphere that they would kick around. And I thought to myself, what other sport for real, like a real organized sport, can you just grab sort of household items and make it a real, as close to, to a real game as possible? I mean, I guess you could do that with a stick and a ball and say that's baseball, but not really. You need a glove, no. you need a helmet, you need bases, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. It is a poor man's sport. And it is a sport that around the world creates social mobility. It's one way to create social mobility. Of course, it's true. Like if you look at baseball and some of the Cuban players and so that definitely creates social mobility. But the amount of people who play soccer and you can literally, that's a poor man's sport. You can play it anywhere. Yeah. Um, it's just as a movement in the in, in the world, I think it's the most, is it fair to say it's the most popular sport? Probably. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Certainly ratings. I mean, the World Cup final has, I think this last World Cup final had 1.3 billion people 
that watched that yeah. final. I mean, this, who's your go-to team? Um, well, I, I like Spanish football like a lot, you know. Um, and yeah. of course, it's tough to talk about Spain without the Real Madrids and Barca's, At- Atletico Madrid, stuff like that. I like that yeah. that a lot. Um, you know, I'm 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 hopeful for American soccer. Uh, only yeah. lately. It's, but I think this gets to something that I do want to, you know, I want to kind of ask you about because there's a difference to how we view sports that relates to business based on the culture that we come from, right? So in America, it seems to me that this is like sports is a business and sports marketing is something that on the good side leads to a lot of, you know, interesting content and campaigns and a lot of fandom. On the bad side, it tends to feel very transactional. Where I don't get that same sense when I watch like European, particularly soccer, it feels much more communal. It feels much more real, like relational. Like I was born here. This is my yeah. team. I, I, I don't know. There's a difference there, uh, yeah. depending on what sort of territory you're approaching the question from. I believe very much that the the European approach to soccer is is local pride. Um, it's your city. All these clubs, there's no private club in that sense. All of these clubs started as the city's organization of doing the sports, you know, because it's totally, totally different organized, differently organized than in the U.S., these sports. It doesn't come out of the university or something like that. What, what the sports comes out of the, the, the school, which is state school, and, and eventually they have sports clubs that train for this and they are usually sponsored by city and there's one in each city, sometimes two. And then there's this rivalry, but usually one club in the city and that's where everybody goes. And so there it, where you're from and your allegiance is very strong with that. And that's sort of why, of course, the first allegiance on the world cup is for me, either to Switzerland or the U S but then Neither of these, let's say in the second or third round, were out of those. And then you have to put the allegiance somewhere else. And that's where it becomes interesting of um, of the kind of song. Then you start to focus on how you like it played, right? And that's like what you're saying with the Spanish way or the Brazilian way. And I have to say, I, I love the German way of playing it. I, and I that's too. very that's very surprising because I'll, I'll tell you a secret that the Swiss do not like the Germans at all mm. a swiss will react to germans or to germany or anything german like a french canadian would react to america really so ooh, they cannot stand it there's and no so love loss i the fact that i i'm the only person in my family and probably in my whole town who roots for germany in the world cup because i love how they play <laughs> yeah i i literally objectively i think they play beautifully and so, okay, so the German, I can get over it. Yeah, I grew up watching guys like uh, Jurgen Klinsmann and Lotte yeah. Matthaus. And I mean, yeah. these guys, you know, and they, they have, uh, 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 is it uh, Der, what is it? What's the, 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 the expression for the team, for the German side? It's uh, something mechanical. The Bundeself, uh, the, okay. the, the national 11, the Bundeself. The Bundeself, yeah. But they also, there, there's also another expression that, I'll remember it, but it's something to do with yeah. the style of of the side. But Germany, the German style of play, at least when I grew up, was um, a lot, of, first of all, a lot of precision, a lot of speed, yeah. and a lot of power, and a lot of strategy, too. 
the yeah. the south the south american style of play generally speaking and then of course it varies and and you know now when you look at international clubs they're made up of sort of citizens of of, of the world exactly. right so it's kind yeah. of hard to have it in, at the club level but you still yeah. see some of this at the national team level exactly yeah but i the, think so but the south american style is much more uh, you know it's more, it's more laid back by the way there's some there's some playful it, there's some it's playful, it's playful. It's playful yeah. and there's more romance and there's more, uh, you know, flair. There's more flair. Um, yeah. And I, th- I w- interestingly, there's some interesting, there should be a uh, uh, some kind of document or piece of content that, you know, connects uh, maybe Pope Francis's style relative to soccer's style, right? If, if Pope Francis, if, the, if this papacy was a national team, a national side, yeah. what would it be, right? Uh, relative yeah. to football. Yeah, exactly. Because I think yeah, yeah. that's I think that's a big part of you know people who get very uh, animated by Pope Francis either positively or negatively in some ways are responding. Well, he does to have that. a well, he has a favorite football club back in Argentina that that even came to visit him already once, and then of course he's rooting for Argentina. It's funny that the you know there's of course the rivalry in the Vatican between the Argentina team and the Swiss team, um, and. The the Vatican actually has its own soccer league. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. And it's yeah, and it's all the different employee teams. So there's a Swiss Guard team. There is, there is a Gendarmes team. There's a Museum team. There's there's a San Pietrini team, and they all play each other. That's like um, an intramural. They league. usually yeah yeah exactly. And then they ha- they started to build a national team. There's even talk about them playing in a larger, you know, on the, on the national, on the international level now. Uh, but of course, very cool. Is how, how would you even make I, it through the rounds? I, al- uh, you know? I always see a documentary when I hear stories like this. I'm like, there should be a documentary about that. Um, yeah, yeah. For, for, you mentioned uh, the Vatican. And so for, for folks who may not know you, you're, uh, you know, entrepreneur, professor, consultant, speaker, author, you know, all of these uh, multi-hyphenate kind of things that you've done, but you also um, were a Swiss guard at, at, at some point. And the, here's another one of my idiosyncratic questions that relates to language. How, how do you deal, how, how, what language did you principally speak when you were in the Swiss guard dealing with dignitaries, but dealing with staff and dealing with different things? Was it just code switching constantly between things? No, it, Italian. It's Italian. The Vatican speaks Italian. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. that's so the first thing I went me. to go. The, yeah, I had to immediately do very intense Italian classes and learning that. Now, I served John Paul II, and he knew he would, of course, when he meets you right away, check where you're from and him loving, uh, you know, loving being uh, uh, polyglot, multilingual in polyglot. Yeah. He would figure it out. He would say, don't tell me, don't tell me, I'll tell you. And then he would speak in your language. And and he in the beginning spoke uh, spoke German to me, but but then once I knew Italian proficiently, we spoke in Italian. He switched to um, Italian. But you know, yeah. you're you're saying I just a, a funny a, a funny side comment. It's I'm so proud of having been in the Swiss Guard and everything, but it is a little bit like you know I sort of make fun. It's like Homer Simpson, who was a high school football player, and for his entire life, that's what he that's his, his thing. In a way, it's a little bit. No matter what I'm going to do in life, I serve John Paul II in the Swiss Guards, and in a sense, it's a little bit like that, but it, not on the same level that it's insignificant because it is significant. It's changed my life. I found Jesus Christ there through, n- not least through him, 
And so in that sense, it gave my entire life a focus. But it's it's interesting. I'm 57 years old and we're talking something that I did when I was 20 years old. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think a part of that, I totally get the sentiment, by the way. I feel the same yeah. way about my own, my own life in certain respects with certain yeah. things that become these defining characteristics that are not necessarily current anymore, but people still recall. Exactly. So I get the I get the sentiment, but it's also because it's so unusual, Andreas. I mean, how yeah. many total Swiss Guard right now are alive on planet Earth? About 2,000, I would say. And yeah. there's a fraternity of us, and we have a – it's a very close-knit society. So in the sense – I go back every year still, and I help for a week. Of course, I don't put my uniform on. I'm not in charge of security. But what we do, the older guys, because the average guard is 20 years old. So us old guys come in and we help with the management and the fundraising and the working and, and negotiating and things like that. And, and we sort of are behind the scenes. But I go, so I do work for them here in the U.S. We have a foundation and all that. But then I also go back once a year, at least once a year, to help out uh, with with all this kind of stuff. Mostly, you know. If they need it, I'll, I've been there and I've done uh, food duty, like cleaning the the, 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 the kitchen or whatever. And I, I'll do that. I'm happy to do that. But usually it has to do with office stuff and sort of managerial things. Well, if you just. And, and we all keep in touch with each other. If you if you just do the do the math, uh, that is point zero zero three percent of the global population. <laughs> Yeah. I just, I just That's did the math. I just did the math in the background. So I, I think the, 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 you know, part of the. Uh, by the way, I didn't do the math. Google did the math, but um, yeah. I think part of the reason it's because of it. It's so novel. I mean, I've never in my life, yeah. as much as I talk in, you know, a lot of the same circles. You and I spend a lot of time in similar circles, but I don't know a single one of those two thousand besides you. I've never even. I mean, maybe I met them, but I didn't know I was meeting them. I've yeah. seen certainly. So it is just, su- it's almost like meeting, um, I don't know, like a, maybe a world-class pianist or, uh, or a painter. You know, I, yeah, went I, know. Half, I went through half my life without really telling anybody in my business world. So I started, I helped start companies my whole life and so on. Most people I worked with had no idea about my background. And mm. it wasn't until actually when John Paul died, it's a, it's a long story, but when he died, I... I had this, a lot of things were going on in my life and I, and somehow providentially I ended up in the vicinity of, in Europe on my way to Asia and I changed my flight the night he died and I was in, and I was in front of him, of his deceased body within, like within 12 hours of him dying. Mm. And, you know, a mil- millions of people try to do this and I just can basically just walk in and I get to say my goodbyes right in front and they were still preparing him to be laying in state. And that was the moment I totally lost it there and sort of said, yeah. Lord, why would you give me this privilege? I, you know, I come from this very, I come from a village with 400 people in Deacon. I'm, I'm nobody. I'm a total hick where I come from. And so I get to meet like the man of the century and I'm there and I prayed about, you know, to say, Lord, why me? Why, why am I, you know, that, and this was like my spiritual mentor and, 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 and guide in a sense. And I'm like, why, why do I have this? And I, it's a few times in my life I heard these kind of direct answers in my prayer. And, and what I heard is you're welcome. Wow. So I, so then I started to say, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and then I heard, 
So what are you going to do with this? Mm. And my reflection right away was that actually my company at this point doesn't even know where I'm at. I changed my flights and everything, but I never told them that, you know, my board and all of that. I never told them why and what I was doing. And I decided right then and there that nobody will ever meet me again without me talking about what happened to me through John Paul to Christ, right? And okay, if I'm going to be the Jesus freak from here on, that's what I'm going to do. So How old were I, you? I promised, yeah, I, that was when he died in 2004. 2004. Okay. Yeah. So 20 Ten years, years ago. ago. Before that, I did not uh, tell people about my experience in the Swiss Guards. My businesses were my business partners really have no idea what my background was. Well, I think that's that's a very rich vein of potential discussion because what you've identified, I went through in my own life. I think a lot yeah. of people who have business focused, certainly you know, entrepreneurial uh, uh, you know, folks in that kind of food group of person contends yeah. with this reality, which is this sort of uh, oppressive compartmentalization that mm -hmm. uh, especially American culture tends to advance where, you know, you are your work self, then your personal self, then some other self. And by the, you know, by the time you're done, you have a multi-personality disorder and yeah. the, you're the, being schizophrenic, you're being schizophrenic yeah. and the lack of reconciliation between those different personas creates anxiety, stress, yeah. depression, you know, leads to a lot of bad things that I saw coming up in the media world. I saw mm -hmm. a lot of drugs, a lot of affairs. Yeah. A lot. I, 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 I would, I, you know, full on to the point where people were literally leading alternate lives, like different, you yeah. know, and so it, it can kind of lead or be the backdrop to a lot of this yeah. bad, bad behavior. And we all yeah. kind of can hit that moment at some point for different reasons. Now, it doesn't mean that I, so I did leave, lead a Catholic life. So I, I've been married, you know, I met my sweetheart in the, well, I, when I was still in the Swiss Guards. He was 20, I was 21. That's why I came to America. I didn't speak a word of English when I met her. And I came to America and I had this huge, you know, I, I was privileged to live, blessed to live the American dream. And so privately, I did live a Catholic life, but I didn't talk to anybody about it. It's in a way, you know how Jesus says, to, don't put the light under a on, under a bushel, under a bushel. Or what, what is the word in English? Yeah, yeah. And bushel. so I did mm -hmm. that. I did mm -hmm. that. And so I had all this success, and I would never tell people about this. And I also saw, and and I think you would re relate to this, Deacon. I saw people next to me suffer. I was in some of the hottest, largest startup companies and played critical roles in those. I saw people kill themselves with drugs next to me. I saw sure. them go from one affair to the other. I saw them become sick and die and have heart attacks and all of this. And I never said anything. Yeah. And that, that's sort of what, that's sort of what came out of, of, of me when I'm, when I say goodbye to John Paul II, mm. that, that he, you know, this thing, what are you going to do with this in a way is an accusation of saying you could help people, you know that? And you're not, it's like, if you have a, uh, what do you call the ring? The, the, there's a lifesaver. Mm -hmm. And you're at the beach and you're, see, you're seeing people drown and you're just standing there, not, not throwing the lifesaver. And then I said, okay, this is it. This is the last time that's, that when I meet somebody that I'm not going to talk about it. And I have dedicated my whole career, my whole life to that, to going back and, and to help business people in their careers yeah. to find 
you know, in the beginning, I would call it happiness because that's what, what you immediately go after. Meaning, and it, of course, ultimately the true, the good, and the beautiful. And that mm. is a person. Hey, man. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like... It, you can't get blamed for people not grabbing the lifesaver, but you can get blamed for either yeah. not not seeing them or not throwing it. And 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 going back to what you said earlier, you know, you were leading a Catholic life. I think I can say the same thing about me, but in the in the fullness of that understanding, I have to go back and check myself and go, well, was it really a full Catholic yeah, life? You know, true. you think of you think of Saint James, right? The idea of this sort of faith without doing anything is dead. It's like, well, oh, I was I, I was Catholic in the sense of, you know, certainly culturally Catholic. That's for one. Born into the faith, mm -hmm. lived it out, you know, in all the different ways. You know, basically maintained all of my sacramental observation for the most part in my life. But this dynamic that you just described, I would be the first to raise my hand and say, yeah, that was also me. In other words, not not revealing the fullness of who I was. That's one thing. And yeah. then the second thing was. Well, when I knew that certain things could help, I didn't do it. I'll give you one quick example. I had a, when I was working at Univision, big you know, Spanish man, uh, language media company mm -hmm. for those who may not know, but Univision, and I had a very senior role. I was the executive vice president of the digital business, basically. And I had a, a coworker who in a moment of vulnerability and confidence, because he was kind of like, you could tell there was something up with him and for weeks and there was something up with him. And so... At some point in some conversation, you know, uh, in the hallway kind of deal, he confided in me that he was getting a divorce, that he was in the mm -hmm. midst of a divorce. And I gave him some so totally lukewarm, like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> you know, it'll get better. You know, these things happen. It was terrible, yeah. terrible advice. And frankly, years later, I told him that. I said, you know, I gave you terrible advice. It was those missed opportunities that for me were the, what are you going to do about it? Right. What are you going to yeah, do about it? Yeah. Is like, got to live the re the reality of who you are. I was a Sunday Catholic, you know, mm. and that's easy to be Catholic on Sunday. Uh, but the, the rubber hits the road on Monday through Saturday. And that's what I did not do. And so I'm the last, I'm the last one to throw a stone at anybody. Um, but what I can do as I'm getting older is have, I actually have some wisdom that I can offer through this experience and through this, you know, it's almost like I, I had, I had several conversion experiences. I'm so convoluted that the Lord has to do this several times to oh, me, me in too. stages yeah, <laughs> because, because I can't go all the way. And so I'm in, in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled that way of, of really not, uh, you know, saying the Lord isn't done with me, but what I have. I'm passionate to share mm. partially because what I'm seeing is of course what it does to me. I've been, I've lived through some huge ups and huge downs. I mean, I was part of the company that brought the internet to the PC. I mean, just get your head around this. It was called For FTP sure. software. So the first large, we went public in 93. I said, you know, people make a lot of money many of them lost their money within two years. They were, they were without money. And we're talking about a couple of hundred million dollars, right. Or, or, or $70 million and people who either were dead or, or broke after two years. Right. And then I was part of dragon systems where, which invented speech recognition, like what mm -hmm. you have today in Siri and Alexa and all that. Sure. And, and we sold that company for $600 million. And it turned out that the company we sold it to was fraudulent and it went to zero. Imagine that's imagine when that nuclear 
bomb goes off, what do you do? And of course, there's plenty of self-destruction and plenty of bad. This comes out in bad ways. And I didn't help. Hmm. I did it for myself. I didn't help others. It's like, you know, you help the person next to you. And that's right out, a little bit after that is when this whole second level of conversion happened. You say, well, why do you think I'm letting you experience all these things? So you can actually not just learn from it, not just for yourself, but for others. And now I'm turning around. And I, there were so, several other stories like that. But now what I'm simply trying to do is to, is to share those insights and share those uh, um, tools and methods and uh, you know the grace that that can help you through this kind of thing yeah and you know going back for just a second on the whole idea of your conversion happening in phases i think on some level that's all of us but there's a particular kind of person i think i'm very much like you where you have this sort of overabundance of extraordinary moments and it's really God just showing you, hey, you know what, like pay attention, I'm here. And I have to, yeah. he has to work extra hard with me. But I'm also reminded of um, the scripture passage that comes to mind for me is out of the gospel of John, where he says, I have so many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now, right? That was me in the sense that like, you know, all the fullness of truth has been there, but he had to parcel it out for me in little sort of chunks because yeah. there were things that if I would have seen, I think I would have run from you know, or I would have rejected outright if they would have been, been presented in their fullness at that particular yeah. moment. I Look, I am by no means the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree. Not, like far from it. I sucked at school. I have dyslexia. I have ADHD. The fact that I wrote a book is, is a miracle. Not it's, just one. It has a two, yeah, it has a twofold thing. In a way, God is guaranteeing, in a sense, my humility. And I'm not, I'm not saying... I, I am the virtue of humility, but I'm saying one thing that I that has never changed in me is that I know I come from the backwaters. I'm no, I know I'm not the smartest guy, and therefore all the success that happens to me, I know it's not me because because it can't be. Hmm. So that that part is in a way something that that keeps being that's one constant in my life. So I know it's the Lord, but I didn't now share with others how to how to approach that. And yeah. I didn't in a way give glory to God for this. And that's, that's my, you know, that's my Achilles heel in a way. That's my sin, mm. not the pride itself from, you know, of course, just like anybody I've, uh, I've pride to that extent, but not, I don't actually think that I'm the super genius who, who did all of these things. I, I'm not, but I, I was just blessed to be there. But I has had something to, to add, and in a way, I knew who was behind it and never said anything. And that is what's yeah, it's, my, that's my what whole I, idea of going in and changing that. Yeah, The, the sort of sin of, uh, of inaction, right? Not to be confused with non-action. Omission. Yeah. Of omission, yeah. It's a lot of times, I, but what, what, what really resonates with me, forgive us what we have done and what we have failed to do. And I'm oh, telling yeah. you that the list of failed to do. Massive. If, if, if anybody really pays attention, that's your biggest list. Yeah. It's not, you know, often we think of the things we do and that's okay. Take care of those. But I'm telling you, the other list is way bigger. Way bigger. Yeah. And, and you know, you think about it in God's economy, um, we're kind of always in the right time and place, right? You hear these stories mm -hmm. about, 
If I hadn't have been there, then I wouldn't have caught the kid falling out of the tree. I was there at yeah. the right time yeah. and at the right place. Well, the way that God works and the way that reality works always in the present moment, which is where God is, we're kind of always in the right time and place. So it, it's really a question of whether or not we cooperate or don't cooperate. And I agree with you. I think that list of the the moments where we don't act or when we don't choose that step toward him are far greater. And if you think about it, it might, I know God doesn't get frustrated, but if you were, if he could be, he'd be frustrated by that, right? It's like, I'm teeing up all of these things for you. They're right Mm -hmm. in front of you. My vision of heaven, or maybe my vision of purgatory is seeing all of those teed up moments, like understanding them right on your, on a personal level. And maybe at the end times, like the, you know, the, the general revelation when the whole history ends, seeing all of those moments, right, for all of humanity. Because I, that, that's what I think this is. The calculus is about things we've missed, as, it, it, perhaps more so than things we've done. And it's the, you know, now I'm going to make a baseball analogy and I don't even know how the game goes. It's the, <laughs> it's the swings we missed. And the swings when you don't miss the swing, it may, whether you hit it right or not is the second question, but just the muscle memory. I think heaven has to do, God is love, and therefore the biggest, the precious, most precious gift God gave us is, is, of course, free will, that we get to choose whether we do this or not. And so he surfs up all these, you know, he throws all these balls, and I get to, what is it called, bat, to hit the thing? Yeah. And I get to bat. The question is, the point of this is actually keep, if we do this in a loving way, and when when an opportunity to love comes and we don't do it, we get ossified and we get to, we get habituated not to react to it. And at the end of our life, God could stand there with outstretched arms and saying, I'm here and I offer you all my mercy, all my love. And we have unlearned to react to love and we actually choose ourselves yeah. to go whatever, into hell or whatever. That we, and look, anybody our age, Deacon, knows that there are habits that we have in life that have started to develop where we can't help it anymore. Th- that's what this is about. That is. This is very simple. That's what this is about, that, that what we have failed to do. And, and I use positive psychology in saying, okay, I understand your sins and some of these habits. The way you switch is to start to look at things of where where does your heart actually react uh, of uh, to to like the, the Lord's call, God's call, doing good, doing good for others? Where does where does your heart react? And then start to do this and start to do so much of it, which actually drowns out some of the ways that the enemy tempts you within your petty little things that you're doing. You know mm. what I mean? It, mm. it it overtakes, and I think that's the 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 sort of the the heaven and hell understanding I'm seeing is that, of course, it's grace, and of course, it's God at the end, but we are unlearning, by by our inactivity, we are unlearning to react to love. And then when the opportunity for love comes, we deny it. And that that calcification that happens when we deny it is real, right? I mean, that, I was talking, I I had John Cannon, who you know, on this show a while back, probably about a year ago, Mm. maybe longer at this point, but we talked about spiritual ROI, Okay. And, yeah. and w- one of the things that he noticed is he was having his kind of reversion mystical experience. I don't know if you've ever talked to him about it, but he talked about the fact that he recognized his kind of ROI increasing with proximity to the divine, right? So in other words, things just 
became more synchronous, despite the fact that they may be difficult, right? That bad things may have happened, but sort of synchronicity, mm-hmm. peace, all of these things increased in proportion to the proximity, right? So walking in God's will increases these things. And so he put it in ROI terms, or we joked about it anyway. And I thought it was interesting because you, the opposite is also true, which is the calcification. You notice, you notice, you know in and of yourself, maybe you're more short-tempered, maybe you're more irritable, yeah. maybe you're less charitable. Like we can sense this. And those kind of desolations, as the Jesuits would call it, are in a way yeah. kind of like guideposts, right? They're kind of getting us back on like, hey, you're feeling this. This doesn't feel comfortable, certainly for the other person, but not for you either. And it helps kind of bring you back into that, into the will of God. Everything is connected to everything else. So, so look, I've been there with the richest and the most famous and, and all of that. And, I, and there's no higher level of happiness there than when I was to the, well, actually in the slums of Kenya, there was more happiness than I saw in Silicon Valley hanging out uh, 100%. With, the, you know, with the best, 200%. the wealthiest entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so everything is connected with everything else. And do not think that money is going to make the difference in that. Um, the stuff that on your interior level, even let's say somebody's listening to this who says, well, don't talk to me about soul or God or anything. Fine. I, I'm, I'm not pushing it. I'm, what I'm saying is on the interior level, are you flourishing as a human being? And what that means is on a overall level, level, your mood, your healthy interior life, respect for yourself, love of yourself, being able to, to love others and everything is that increasing by what you're doing or is it not? And I tell you that it's a natural law in, in humanity yeah. that if you practice what's classically called a virtue, that all that quality increases. And if you practice what's classically called a vice, that decreases. Money won't have anything else to do with it, but that's the bank account. In a way, it's the virtue bank account was what mm. the ROI. And you, you know, that's the golden rule. Do to others as you wish that they would do to you. And that means uh, do good and avoid evil. Yeah, amen. Just like there's a gospel of work, which I, I do want to get into with you, there should be a gospel of Africa. Because you mentioned Kenya. Mm-hmm. Same, my same experience with, with West Africa, the first time I went, I've been to South Africa too, but I went to Cote d'Ivoire and to Ghana, and the, it's, it was a difference between sort of happiness and joy, right? Happiness mm-hmm. is this sort of transient thing. It kind of goes up and down. And joy oh, I is like that. Yeah. joy is a peace despite the ups and downs, right? Yeah. I like and, that. And and you see this real joy, right? Which is we don't have a mm-hmm. lot of the sort of trappings, but yeah. I'd like to see uh and I'm sure there is, I'm just not learned in it, a gospel, a good news of Africa, you know, for the world, because I think that has a lot to teach us. If the if there was, you know, if I should be getting paid by somebody for for things that I do, the African Tourism Board would be one of those that would pay me because I'm constantly talking about the dynamic that you just described, which is the first time I've been to, maybe not as many as you, but I've been blessed to be in about 40 countries in my life. And mm-hmm. the most of those countries were in developed parts of the world, right? A lot of Europe and mm-hmm. things like that. The very first time that I went in the Caribbean, South America, and that kind of thing, although South America varies in terms of development, but the first time I went to Africa was different. And it was different in this sense. When I would go to visit wherever, you know, I went to Holland or France or Spain or Argentina or whatever, and I would return to the United States, my sense was always something along the lines of, wow, I'm really glad to be home. 
I love America. We have so much here that we're, you know, we really need to be grateful for what we have. That's the general sentiment that I would have as I was going through customs returning to the United States. The first time I went to Africa and I flew through London too, which was even, that's another story. But the first time I went to Africa upon return in New York, this was a JFK, the sense that I had was there are so many things we lack. And it was, it was so different, my perspective, having come back from Africa than any other place that I had visited precisely for the reason that you articulate, right? Which is this, this joy that can be felt in the absence of the things that we as Westerners believe are part of making you happy. Yeah. The paradoxical thing here is that then they're economically either not developed or, or actively underdeveloped. And that's actually one, something I did a lot after my career in high, high tech. I got in, into business strategy consulting and I did a lot of work in Africa, all over Africa. I was in Ghana and all these places. And I started to see how we as the Western world try to, quote, help Africa because that's, oh, our, yeah. that's our charity case. Yeah. Did you know that? Um, so Africa is about 12% of humanity. So 12 out of 100 people who, who are alive, 12 of them live in Africa. And out of all the charity that goes around the world and is spent on the world, that's including aid and charity in your church and everything. All of all the charity, 33% of all the charity in the world goes to Africa, wow. 12% of the human race. Mm. But you see, the thing is this, charity does not solve poverty. Charity solves humanitarian disasters. Mm. And yet, we're, so we're going with the wrong approach. For the, we're trying to solve one problem with, with, with the solution for something else. Mm. The problem of poverty or, or the state of poverty, it's something I actually learned from John Paul II, the state of poverty is not solved with money. Isn't that funny? The state yeah. of poverty is not solved with money primarily because being poor is actually, money is an outcome of that. It's not actually the system itself. So, so John Paul was very careful to define, to say, to be poor is the state of being excluded from networks of poverty, uh, of, let me say, being poor is the state of being excluded from networks of productivity and exchange. Mm. I'm telling you, this is one of the smartest things I've ever heard. This is an actionable problem statement. He's, he's the philosopher theologian. Brilliant. He is. He's to brilliant. be poor is to be excluded from networks of productivity. So what's a network of productivity? Well, the internet, the computer, also my uh, my alma mater. You know, having you know, in, um, the network of productivity can be access, political access to people and stuff like that. And the other the other network is to be excluded from networks of exchange. What is that? Well, the internet can be that banking access, Absolutely. food access, Absolutely. market access. And now look at Africa. And I'll give you the neg- the, the 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 proof of this. Because so so it's twelve percent of humanity, thirty three percent of all the charity goes there, and there is this other money that chases around the world uh, that is foreign direct investment, which is basically like venture capital money that says, "Hey, do you have a business idea?" Um, you know the ROI, you know, except here is financial ROI, and only one point four percent of of risk money of of foreign direct investment goes into Africa. So wow. that's what's wrong. That's yeah. what's wrong of how, how we deal with this. And so after, you know, that has been some years ago. And now once I came to Washington, D.C., I started to focus more and more 
on poverty in the United States. Is and Deacon, what I found out is mm -hmm. exactly the same thing, except oh. here, instead of having the Sahara Desert, we have the food desert in D.C. Mm. We have banking deserts uh, and we have an ossified structure that keeps the poor poor. And a lot of the now you mix government into this oh, and there's no incentive, uh, misaligned incentives. I tell you, after after living 10 years here now, and I, I have to say in my own accusation, I didn't know about poverty in the U.S. before because I ran these high-tech companies. I come here, I live the American dream, and then I go abroad. You know, I, I, I lived 80% on airplanes uh, during, during my career. And so I didn't really spend that much time looking at the inner cities of America. Now that I've been here and I've seen the comparison, unfortunately, solving poverty in the United States is harder. Harder. No question. Than harder than solving poverty in Africa. No question. And in, and in our case, our culture, because of all the different uh, confluence of players, has also inadvertently perhaps, but nevertheless, created a lifestyle of poverty that is something- That's why I'm saying it. Yeah. yeah something unique that we have in the world. The other thing is that, you know, we tend to misunderstand what poverty actually is mm -hmm. from an American standpoint. I saw a um, a video- uh, that was put out by the USCCB. And I look, I'm, I love the USCCB, and this is not a dig against them. But this video, which was, was supposed to explain the Catholic social principle of the preferential option for the poor, okay? Yeah. And it's for it's by the USCCB. So the audience, at least presumably, is American, right? We're trying to explain <laughs> yeah. this preferential option for the poor. And this video, which I'm sure they overpaid for, because that tends to happen in these church kind of things with media. Mm -hmm. But this video was like five or five minutes. And yeah, it, it it had different speakers and it highlighted some of the actual teaching on the preferential option. All that was fine. But the imagery that was used, Andreas, was, you know, like some village in Nepal, Haiti, like all these different things, reinforcing the notion by the time you got done with it, that poverty was something external to the country. And it was one of the things that I looked at, I was like, well, man, that's a huge miss because we're, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're sort of, re we're reducing in this case, the idea of poverty, first of all, to just material poverty, where a lot of our problem is not material poverty, it's poverty of other kinds. And number two yeah. is we're making it seem like it's an international phenomenon rather than something that actually occurs in every community across this country, perhaps in different ways. And I thought that is part of the the sort of misunderstanding of what of what poverty actually is, that we just haven't haven't gotten it right. The, the trouble with this is that. You know, this guy, Michael Novak, that I knew, he, he actually wrote some really great books. Mm -hmm. uh, he's just Catholic theologian talking about uh, economics and, and the way the state and everything works. And he was actually one of the great uh, partners of John Paul II to talk about what society looks like. And society has three parts. It has, it's a three-legged stool, I think they said. And the three-legged stool is one is government. Uh, one is the civil society and one is the economy. And each one of these parts is it's like a equal parts in a sense of, 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 a, of a circle. And each part has its very unique job and very unique focus uh, to make overall society work in a balance. And so the government's job is to keep security, to create uh, the rule of law that is blind and, sh and fair to everybody else. 
and make sure keep security internally and externally from the from this uh, from the country and, and all that. But then the, the rule of law and democratic or, or some form of democ- democracy, participatory government, let's say, self government of the people. Yeah, and then you have business, the economy, the objective, the goal for the economy is what the goal for the economy is to create value. In another way, I, I explain it to my students that the goal of the economy is to make money, meaning that this is one of the big lies that, that we, we are growing up with. I'm not asking you personally, but rhetorically, did you know that there's never the same amount of wor- of money in the world? People think mm-hmm. there's this many dollars. And so if somebody gets this money, they're, they're, they're taking it from somewhere else. That's not somewhere true. Else. In a free market, if I create something, and you're willing to pay f- more for it than it it costs me to create it. The difference we call it profit. I call it new money. New the, money. The Fed has to print new money every time I'm selling something at a profit, as long as the buyer had a choice to buy it or not, because that's the only measure to find out is it truly value add or not. Is it forced? Otherwise, it would be thievery, and that's when you have monopolies and all of that. But the economy is supposed to do that to create value and give people the outlet to apply their creativity in economic terms. And then you have the civil society. Civil society, it's very like what Tocqueville wrote about in, in, about the US. The civil society is made up of, of course, the family, the smallest unit, and then around them, the neighborhood, the, the, the city, and like the clubs they have, the associations they have, but also the churches they have and the schools that they have. And the outcome of that of that civil society is culture. Mm. It's what people believe, the glasses in a way, the way they interpret what happens to them, the and the way yeah. we send them afterwards. It's in a way that group of the society, of society forms people that will actually hold the laws that the government makes and create true value in, in when they have an opportunity in the, in the economy. Mm. And what we're doing today is to actually turning this upside down, where we're suddenly looking to the state to educate our children and make sure that they are moral, where we start to look at the, uh, and, and by the way, the, 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 the civil society is also the charitable part that takes care of the poor and the dying. and the, Or at least and, should. And now we're pushing this over. Yeah, and now it pushes over even to the government or the economic sector. And by convoluting all this, what John Paul warned about, is that he says, I had an experience when this gets all convoluted. It's an autocratic government. The government will take over on this. And once the government rules everything, we might as well go back into the Soviet Union. Wow. And I think that's but that's, that's but it, sort of something. We, yeah. I was going to say, isn't that precisely what we're seeing in an area like poverty as an example? Look, I, I, I view the, the question of poverty. I know that you have a lot of experience. Um because you co-founded a philanthropic organization that looked at sort of enterprise solutions to poverty. Yeah. My, my experience with poverty relates to um, my marriage, frankly, with my wife. And she, mm-hmm. part of her lived experience before I met her was actually herself being homeless. So she has yeah. experience with being homeless, living on the street, and all the things that you know come up with that. And so my, my sort of lens to poverty is through the the lens of homelessness specifically. And I can tell you that in that particular case, what has, you know, what I've perceived to have happened is that a lot of those structures and 
um, sort of modalities that would go out and do this work, right? So whether it's local communities, church groups, different things like that, that that has been ceded in many cases to uh, municipalities, government actors of various degrees. And there's been this whole infrastructure, this whole apparatus that's been built around what would have, you know, historically been the domain of a different end of that society that you've described. Yeah, exactly. But it's now it's now become so commonplace. The the the, the sort of easy example in Los Angeles is um, a, a few years back, Los Angeles introduced something called the coordinated entry system. It has, you know, it's very. Uh, it was a relatively harmless name, okay? But what this coordinated uh, system was, it was essentially like a 911, but for homelessness. So if you found yourself homeless or you in a, encountered somebody homeless or you wanted to just get somebody off your front lawn, you would call 211, okay? And all of the organizations that previously one-to-one served that need at that moment we're now relegated to being referred by a centralized system to go try to deal with that issue. So the irony and a practical application was that if somebody knocks on a door of a rectory or of a nonprofit or whatever, the first question wasn't, hi, what's your name? It was, have you called 211? And it was mind blowing to me. We felt it firsthand because we were that provider and now had this convoluted kind of government process we had to go to go through just to encounter the person on the other side of the issue. And it to me, it was so symptomatic of everything that you just described. And frankly, this sort of, in a way, the networks of productivity that you mentioned earlier from JP2, because, because networks of productivity to me at the base level is relationship. Like you're in exactly. relation with, with somebody else. Well, yeah. it was a direct, it was a cutting off of that circuit, like instantly. And now you have this like, convoluted yeah. thing to go through see there is two things that i'm going to say this somewhat strongly but but i forgive me it's not a swear word but i there's two things that happen when you institutionalize dealing with social issues that should be handled by society itself by civil society or you know association churches and and in the context of freedom as soon as you put that into the government it becomes ossified like codified institutionalized and by definition, government has to do it top down. And so what you do is you do a unified approach. And then everybody is basically we start to train our whole society to for people to be told what to do. And what look, I've looked at hundreds of of, of poverty projects, and we in the church fall prey to this because yes. it's a culture, it, it changes our culture because the government is now starting to formulate this culture, whereas before this was in freedom, now it's this top-down. I'm, I'm going to first say it and then let's for the listener to just think, think of a poverty project that 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 is famous in your area, that is large in your area. And I'm telling you this, this project assumes that a poor person, be it a homeless person, a drug addict or somebody who's suffering otherwise from material deprivation. The poverty projects usually assume that the poor person is stupid. Yeah because they can't make decisions for themselves. So somebody has to come and tell them what to do. In all my life, everywhere I've ever gone, I've never found stupid poor people. Because I'm telling you this, if I put you on the street and take everything away from you, 
you will do exactly the same thing as the people you're seeing downtown in your t- in your city right now. Mm. If you if I send you over to Kenya and I take everything away from you and put you in this slum, you will do exactly the same thing as these people are doing over there. So if you want to solve this problem, go back to JP2's definition of saying, what are the networks yeah. of productivity exchange that they don't have that we can give them access to to actually solve it? Because if you change the situation, they will. They have just as much of a brain as I do, and they will change their behavior. They're reacting to something. Of course. But with this top-down thing, you're taking even that away mm. from them. And that's the other part that JP2 talked about, is that we in, in, in Catholicism call that properly human dignity. It's actually the Catholic Church who came up with this term, human dignity. That is, the human dignity means you're made, it's not something the government can give you. Human dignity means... You are made in the image and likeness, image and likeness of God, the creator of the universe. So in a way, you have a flicker of a, of a reflection of that, of that creator. And because of you being created by that, by the most powerful and, and, and like by the most omnipotent, uh, omnipotent being, you have certain rights that nobody ought to take away from you. And the number one of those is actually the right that is to be to, it is how that God made you in his image and likeness. And that is with your free will. Mm. You have a, a right to, deter, to self-determination to say, I want to do this versus I want to do that. That's exactly what we're taking away with these top-down systems. And this violates the dignity of the poor. It may put them in an institution and give them more food or something, but that doesn't solve the actual poverty. And you can tell that I'm, I get all worked up about it because this is a fundamentally the wrong part of society trying to solve something. It's like if I'm saying you're, you're, you want to solve the food in your family of who cooks and everything. Let me bring a business in and put a vending machine in your kitchen and then you pay. <laughs> you know how, how wrong that feels. That's the same thing. It's yeah. the wrong part of our society coming to solve a problem where it's not of their business. And I think there's even a deeper issue. And I wonder if you've thought about this, but one of the things that my wife, you know, speaks on the topic of homelessness all over the place. And we've run an organization that uh, journeys with homeless families for now 20 years. And one of the things that she constantly talks about is the vernacular, the language, the way that we speak is part of this problem. Um, And an example of that is she will say, Homelessness is not something to solve. Homelessness is something to heal because at the center of homelessness is not a policy or a house, but a person. Right. And so, and so this idea of looking straight past this, right, we're very solution oriented and all of that is good, but a solution in a way implies something other than persons. It implies a process. It implies you know, a system, a platform, a, you know, series of different players to be organized. But we can kind of skip like right over the fact that what we're talking about is another person who is, as you said, made in the image and likeness of God who can't remove their own dignity, even if they wanted to, right? They can't even do that themselves, even if they wanted to. Like, and, and, and so that to me is like, maybe the ground of the misunderstanding is, is rooted in that. That's deep. I mean, God bless her. She has, you see, there's somebody who speaks out of the lived experience and, and she just, she understands this, that that what I would want to throw in there is of course, another quote from JP2 that I really love. Mm. And he said, 
we're making a mistake. We're saying we're trying to solve poverty as if the, po- the, the, the as if poverty was the enemy. And he says, when you're trying to solve poverty, you end up having poor people who become the enemy, and you're trying to solve yes. poor people. Yes. Which sooner or later, he would say, sooner or later, somebody's going to get hurt. <laughs> you know, you put a you do away with people, you do put away with numbers. Then sooner or later, they're gonna somebody's going to intervene, and we want less poor people, and then we reduce poor people. He says, instead, look at the positive approach. Poor people are folks with unfulfilled potential. Now this is again actionable. Mm-hmm. To ask the person, the homeless person, to say, what is your unfulfilled potential and what's hindering you? So yeah. then you start to focus on the individual. There is For every homeless person, there's a story of why they're there. This is actually what partially makes poverty in the U.S. much more difficult to solve because it has it's a result of a of a system that is within one system. In Africa, it's a different case, and I think it's easier to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the U.S., it's it, that, that doesn't mean I say we shouldn't start. I, I'm actually course, all focused course. on the U.S. right now. I don't work in Africa anymore. Everything I do on, on this is focused on the United States, and and there we need to go back to the individual, like the healing of the individual. There's so much um, traumatic experiences. Self-medication through through dependency and things like this that happen that need to be layer by layer undone, and different people in in our in in our poverty trap in a sense need different solutions. And I actually think it's almost like the Lord is pushing it back to the civil sector because mm-hmm. the government can't do this. It's actually the churches and organizations, civil organizations, one hundred percent, to actually find a solution. And that's yeah. cha- that's chapter and verse from her uh, manifesto, right? Because she is very clear about communicating what the church needs to do more of. I, I mentioned the two one one coordinated entry system in Los Angeles. Sadly, parishes participate in that. Right. So, I mean, imagine walking yeah. up to your parish priest because you haven't had a you haven't eaten in two days. And the parish yeah. priest saying, have you called 211? I mean, that's bananas, right? I mean, like that's, that's, yeah. that, that makes no sense. But, yeah. but this idea of, of going to the individual too is part of that person centricity, right? And I know that, I, I know that actually ties into your kind of broader work in, in, in sort of the gospel of work too, which is yeah. the way that I saw it when I first heard you say person centricity or read one of the things you did. I kind of compared that to customer centricity, which in the business world, yeah. we, under, we understand quite a bit. It's like, oh, we have to be customer centric. But if you really kind of break that down, you're being transactionally oriented, right? What person centricity yeah. is, is relationally oriented. It's like a completely yeah. different thing. So one of the things, again, I'm, you know, I'm the JP2, John Paul II boy is here I am uh, because he's really had a huge impact on my life. So one of the things he would talk about is he said, so what I want you to do, and, and as I, I'm paraphrasing here, okay. So he would say, what what I want you to do is to actually not just uh, serve your customer or serve your employee and, and some and use language like that. I want you to love them. I want you to do you love your customer? Mm. Do you love your employee? And he says, you know, there's a funny thing here because people all go redhead and everything and saying, wow, that's sort of not a not the right word. And he would then he would explain and say, well, language is an interesting thing because different languages have different words of love. 
for love. And in, in Latin, and therefore in Italian, there's different kinds of love. In, in theology, we use different kinds of love. And he says, let's look at, most people don't know uh, Latin, so let's look just at Italian. <clears throat> and he says, here in English, we would say, you know, I love my dog, I love pretzels and peanuts, but I love my wife and my kid too. And, and this is all different loves, right? And we have one word for it. And so he says, you see, the way you ought to love your customer the, uh, the way you ought to love your employee, your, your partner in work, is in Italian, you would say to your wife, ti amo, mm -hmm. I love you. Amor, amos, is mm -hmm. this kind of love. When you love somebody, uh, me and you working together, the way you say this in Italian is ti voglio bene. Instead of ti amo, you say ti voglio bene. I, I want, want your good. Your good. Yeah. And he says, now we're at the solution. The answer back, the question back. So you, I want you to tell your customer. So if you're if you're in a business right now, and think of your product or the service you're you're providing, and then think of the customer. And now in your mind, look at this person and say, Ti voglio bene, I want your good. And this person is asking back, well, what good do you want from me? Mm. Right? and think of the good that this service or product brings them and what it ought to be. What he says, it should be, I want for you the good, the true, and the beautiful forever. I wish you into heaven. And the objection would be, I don't believe in heaven. I don't care. It's, it matters what I wish on you. That's right. And even if, you, even if you're not a believer, I wish you into heaven anyway, even more so. And mm. so this idea of, I want you to keep that in mind. This ensures that the products we produce, the goods we create are truly good, and the services we provide truly serve. Now let's do the same thing for your employees to say, look, I'm paying you the wages, and therefore our, our transaction is done. It's no, it's not. Yeah. Because ti voglio bene, what's the good you want from me? Work is something that goes far beyond this physical transaction. Work, and it's something that, that is at the core of John Paul's message. Work, we can, you know how I said earlier that we have a will which reflects God's freedom, right? If God wants us to love him, we have, he has to give us free will. Otherwise, it wouldn't be love, right? Well, God also did another thing. If God wants us to be the steward down here, God has to give us the means to continue the creation story because we're in charge. If we're really in charge here, then we... You know, God made us just the same as he made the animals, namely out of clay. But in the Genesis story, there's a very different, and John Potter always pointed that out, there's a very distinct different. At the end, he made the clay, the, 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 the animals, and then when he made the, the human person, at the end, he breathed the spirit into the human yeah. person. Mm -hmm. so, so my physical appearance has, before Jesus' time has nothing to do with God himself because God doesn't look like that, right? But it has to do with my spiritual interior, the spiritual part of my physicality. That is in the image and likeness of God in terms of being the co-creator with God. So now whenever I do something, I can, I can work. And work is in a way the continuation, our mandate to continue creation. And we call that work. So when we do this, we, can, we have a physical aspect to it. What's the spiritual one? And that's where that's sort of the insight that John Paul, Paul gave me. And this is a basic Catholic teaching. And the, in, the insight is this. 
when you try to imitate God and do as God does when he created something, what does he say after he creates something? In the evening, he says what? And he saw? And it was good. That it was good. He Bene. says, attaboy. This yeah. is good. Benfato. Mm-hmm. You know, this is good. This, I'm proud of this. This is a good that is truly good. And this is why I use this, those, those terms. And so what happens if you try to do this? What You imitate God. What happens to somebody when they imitate somebody else? Mm. They, resemble, they become more like them. They resemble them, yeah. How is God? Holy. When you work like this, you become more holy. It's part of your path to holiness. Mm. So, the Tivoglio Ben, if you're a Catholic, if you're a Christian on, uh, uh, entrepreneur or, or boss or manager or CEO, and you say to your employee, ti voglio bene, I want your good. Then the good you want them is on the one hand to you reach excellence and do and, and create good value for your customers. On the other hand, you want them to become holy because you want them to create goods that are truly good, to provide services that truly serve, and so imitate God, even if they don't know it. And that's that's a gold nugget that's that's hidden in Catholic theology that John Paul beautifully displayed. Yeah, that's quite a nugget. By the way, the other thing in very practical terms with Tivoglio Bene is that wanting somebody's good, especially for employers, you know, a lot of bosses and executives listen to this show, um, does not always mean that the best for that employee is working with you. Uh, Bingo. I I, I struggle so much with this because, you know, most of my clients, Andreas, for the firm that I run are CEOs. That's that's like our point of contact with most of our clients. And if they're not CEOs, they're COOs or some other C-suite and generally have a lot of sway over a lot of people, a lot of human capital to use that, even though that's kind of a derogatory name in this case. But um, and one of the things that I find is a big struggle is, you know, people failing to do what they know is best for the business. And in a lot of cases, best for that individual because they're afraid of maybe a difficult conversation or somebody having to go their own way. And so this idea of Tivoglio Bene is so good because it it, it kind of opens up what that really means, which is the, the best for that person may be that their career and their their ident their 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 humanity can flourish best in a different environment. And if you really love exactly. them, if you really you know Tivoglio Bene, if you really do, then you're going to want that, not the opposite of that, which is keep them in a place where they're not meeting that full potential, right? And and exactly. it shouldn't be a platitude; it should be really felt. But it has to also, in some cases, be done. Having the privilege of manning managing, as they say, human resources, is like is also a God-like thing. And that means you shall be held accountable for, you know, like the the profitable servant, for what you're doing with these resources, people in a sense that are given to you. And when you're seeing that somebody is a, a round employee doing a square job, then you find that this person is not gifted to do that. I, I take you for, to the beginning. So I had this huge privilege and this chance to become one of the founding members of the Bush School of Business here at the Catholic U- University of America. And when they said, what do you want to teach? I put up my hand and I said, the first course, whatever that is, I want the first course. Because and I'm not an academic. I don't have a doctorate or anything. But I've hired thousands of people. 
And the number one thing, school does a terrible job in teaching us this, uh, preparing us for a career, a vocation in business or, or something else. And that is because what you need to know, business is a very simple thing. How may I help you? If I do it profitably, it's a business, right? And solve your problem profitably. But but the how may I help you involves two things. It starts with I, how I help you. The I, most students don't know themselves. They don't know their talents. You see, talents are God-given. This is not, skills is different from talents. I can teach you skills. I can't teach you talent. The first thing to do with these students when they come in, and they're 18-year-old, I have right now 230 of them. And I do the same thing with all of them at once to say, know thyself. What talents has God given you? That mm. the stu- and this is the kind of stuff when you do it, you lose track of time, which, because that's a sign of eternity in a sense. It's the stuff that people come to you and say, look, you, you know how to do this. Even if it comes out, you're 18 years old. Okay, so you play video games or you fix the computers of other people. So, but let's let's explore it. And I work with them to say, what does it? What's deeper underneath it? Yeah, because yeah. deep underneath it is a deep gift that God has given you. Now, if you use that talent and you use it to create value for others, you live your ergon, like your calling. Yeah, this is what a vocation is—a calling. Because the way God put the calling inside of you by, is by giving you these talents. I tell you what, I'm six foot nine. I'm not supposed to be a horse jockey, you know, <laughs> because God didn't give me that talent. And this is just a physical, you know, I'm six nine, two fifty. That the ho- I should carry the horse. So th- this is like people can see this as the visual talent, but the internal talents are just as strong. And you, as a manager, see it. And so don't lie to people. You tell people, and sometimes, you know, it's going to hurt a little bit, but you're going to re-channel them to say, you know what, here's what you're really good at. You should go, I'll give you a reference. You should go do that. Hmm. That is ti voglio bene, not keeping the peace and making sure that nobody uh, is uncomfortable because they're called. The excellence that we're called to is not pleasure. It's not not pleasure. It's greatness. And yes. it goes through these stages of, of finding your talents and then uh, learning the skills and the discipline and the virtues to, to, to really bring these talents to the fore. And that is actually, a, uh, in many ways, uh, a stressful, painful, and difficult journey. I was just going to say that greatness and excellence comes with a price. You know, it hurts. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. always, I always equate a lot of this with physical fitness. And I know you as a, you know ex-military person understand the idea of kind of basic training and getting yourself physically fit. But physical fitness hurts. It hurts. Yeah. Like, you know, lifting up a giant weight hurts. It does something physiologically. It actually tears muscle fibers. And when they regrow... They regrow on top of each other, which is what creates muscle mass. So the whole process of trying to achieve excellence, trying to achieve greatness, comes with that sort of pain built into it. I think all of this too, which is another thing that you've said before, which really blew me away the first time that I I read it or heard you say it, um, which is one of these insights that is missed, but it all relates to what we've been talking about, is the idea of in the business life, Rather than orienting to doing more, orienting to being more, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, paradoxically perhaps have this conversation a lot with people when they find out that I'm a deacon and they mm-hmm. constantly want to talk about what the deacon does. And they also want to talk about it in time parameters. Like, how do you find the time to do your diaconate stuff? 
And my answer to them is depending on the circumstances, but oftentimes I'd say in the same way that I find the time to be a husband or in the same way that I, you know, can make the space in the calendar to be a man. It, yeah. it, it's, it's part of my being. This is who I exactly. am, not something that I do. But I think in the business life, especially in the entrepreneurial life, when you're chasing a thousand to-dos every second of every day, the orientation can be about the task, can be yes. about the doing and missing the, the essence of the being. And you, you waste your whole life. This is why I'm starting with the business students to say, who are you? Because, you know, we ask each other this instinctively. What do you do? Who are you? And then you say, oh, I'm an accountant. I am this or I'm that. Is that who you really want to be? Mm. Because, because what made you want to be that? So let me first dream of, and what I do is I basically tell them, you know, you can say it in a secular or a religious way. In, in the religious way, I'm saying, I want, an, I want you to dream about who Saint, Saint Charlie is, mm -hmm. Saint Charles, mm -hmm. right? Who is this? And not the Saint Charles who has Andreas's height or Andreas's Mm -hmm. speaks German or something, but the, the Deacon Charlie, the same Deacon Charlie, who is, who Deacon Charlie is with your, with your talents and non-talents and challenges and everything and start to dream how that looks like as the saint and then start to be that, fall in love with this vision and start to be that. For the non-secular way, I would say, or for the secular way, I would say, start to think of all the gifts you're given. Now, you're not competing with the person next to you, the best version of yourself. Start to fall in love with that. And the best version of yourself, you don't get to say, oh, I don't have that hurt or I didn't have that experience. No, this is, you come as a package. You can't deny yourself. How does that person fully flourish, become fully human? Mm. Fall in love with that and then act out of that being, being. Be first, act afterwards. Amen. This will, this will order your life in a way. And, and you know, I wish... Other people, more people would have this. This is the gift I'm trying to give to our students. I think it's a huge. Start at 18 with knowing who you want to be before you act. I think, by the way, side note is one of my sadnesses about, you know, losing some of the classic instruction and philosophy and theology and just in general mm -hmm. is the idea of an insight like being precedes doing is something that you know, it's kind of a foundation of Western civilization that in some cases now we just don't get, right? So the, we're not plugging in some of those foundational things from the very beginning, but it's huge that you do that, Andreas, for so many reasons. But let me tell you the, the one that I think about instantly. When you tell an 18-year-old, 19-year-old in the context of a college experience in a business class, let's see that image of the fullness of who you're supposed to be, or let's imagine, you know, St. Charles as an example, yeah. What you're also doing is you're helping to inoculate that person against a, a, a very common trajectory of despair and dissatisfaction because yeah. a lot of people will pick the job that they can make the most money at, the job that is situated because of some family yeah. connection, the, the career. Comparing themselves. Yes. They compare themselves to other people, and that's that's completely useless because – because like I, I can compare myself to Einstein, it's not going to go anywhere. Okay. And, and, and now on social media, you even compare yourself to people who don't really exist because you only see a sliver of them. But I want people to fall in love. It, it has to do with self-love as well. Mm. That you start to love. This is what I'm saying. I really mean love that vision of yourself mm. as, as the pinnacle, the 
full human you. Mm. And, and, and John Paul would say that the will is a function of love and love is a function of the will. It's love is a decision. I want you to decide to start to love St. Charles and then be that and act out of it. Once you act out of this, your love for St. Charles will be the strength of the will to do what he needs to do. Otherwise, you're powerless. If you don't have the will, you're powerless. That's why you need to fall in love with that vision. Mm. And unless, you know, I'm telling the students, don't think that you're not doing that right now because you're doing it just unconsciously. And other people are feeding that ideal that I'm telling you to come up with yourself. And then they, they are programming you in a way to pursue something that has nothing that, that, that is not the volume bene. And then one more thing, if I may, I add to it. You know, there's this famous study about how we become the average of our five best friends or something like that. I know. I, I don't know whether that's 100% true or not. But uh, <laughs> of course, if I think of when I was 18 years old, I don't. Yeah, the, friend, depends, I, the friends have evolved for me, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I have certainly evolved. Um, but. What I do is I say, we spend all this time, you know, I teach entrepreneurship, the first course in business, and we call it the vocational business, but it's entrepreneurship. But I'm saying, I'm not, my way of teaching entrepreneurship is not primarily to start a company. Mm. My way is to basically start, say, you Inc., because you will have 20 or 30 jobs in your life. Some of these will start in your own company, but you might as well think of yourself as a company. Yeah. And think about it, most business schools put all this rigor and everything about researching companies and making sure when you have the company, make sure you have a board of directors and advisors and this and that. I'm saying, what about you? Do you have a board of directors? Do you have advisors? Do you have the bylaws and the laws for yourself? So let's start with that. Know thyself. Like I do the whole discovery of their own, of their talents and proclivities and interests and so on. But then I also ask them to create a board of directors and appoint a chair chairman of the board, and I want to have five people who are not with us or you have no reach, you have to read their books or pray or something, and then three or four people who are physically available. And then start to see these as mentors and diversify your approach. You pray part, you read part, and you meet part, but you you have a reason for each board member on there, just like I did in my companies, just like you do in your company. And now you're starting again with the will, you're starting to take control of your future. And these people will, will then, because you're asking them for advice, it's a, it's a, a very strong, it's a great human attribute. When you're asking for advice, most people don't lie to you. Mm. And if you're asking for that, I think we set the students up to get some pretty level-headed advice for the beginning of their life. Inevitably, on every one of these recordings, Andreas, at some point, either I or the guest inadvertently names the episode of the show. And I think you just did. You Incorporated, which I love, by the way. That should be an entire brand. Should be merch. I'd wear the T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> and in the absence of some of these early lessons, I can imagine that that leads to some of the things that you talk about that exist out in the, in, in the current business culture, the culture of conformity, the culture of calculation, some of these yeah. things, if you don't have that basis, then it, you kind of get into these sort of tributaries that are, are not good. All these things are good tools. They make good servants, bad masters, right? And business itself is a good servant, a bad master. 
So you need to come in as the master. You, I always tell them also with social media, I say, when you go on social media, it's a tool, okay? Go on there with an objective. I don't want you to just go and hang around. I want you to say, we're doing stuff with social media. Same with chat, GTP and everything. I'm not afraid of any technology as long as it's your servant, not your master. Mm. And that, of course, if you go unprepared into business, you acquire a lot of power and you think it's your power, but it's power over you, rather you over power. Des describe uh, briefly the culture of calculation and the culture of conformity. It's, it's the... The culture of calculation is the ROI. It's like the people who say, well, you know, I had friends who would, would always say, I'm not getting married because it's not, it's, the ROI isn't there, right? To say this costs much more and, and she's not, and my wife, my potential wife, if I have a girlfriend, I can switch things and it doesn't cost the same. And that's calculate, you know, calculating human relationships in a way. The, the, and, and that doesn't mean that I never do ROI. It's just that there's some things that shouldn't be for sale. And there's some things that I will give my life for, like my marriage. Like I have a 100% yes. It's a self-gift. There's no ROI there. There's just, that's the self-gift. Same, you know, with, with my faith, parenting, and so on. And also, it's like my word, right, in, in a business. The culture of conformity has to do, we all experiencing, we, we all experience it. You're in a room and somebody brings up something, I don't know, some woke thing or some politically correct thing, and you're just not going to say anything against mm. it because when, when all the sheep walk this way, you walk this way. It's, it's, you know that famous picture with, with the Nazis where everybody goes like this and there's this one, and there's this one guy in there who has his hands down and says, no, nope, not oh, me. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. God yeah. knows the guy, but probably got into trouble, but that's nonconformity. And I, the nonconformity to me means not I'm like, I'm like a, a difficult person with high transaction cost. I'm a person who uses my will effectively, mm. my will. I use the gift, the greatest gift God has given me other than the potential of eternal life or, mm. or my eternal life is my will, my free will that I get to decide. So I will not abdicate my will. We mm. abdicate. This is the other trap with the government is that we abdicate our yeah, charity to the government. For sure. And then you don't get to control what charity you're doing. I will not abdicate. I do it. Right. You want to not abdicate your will, which means I sometimes overlap with something that's politically correct to say there's no space for hate here or, or something woke and, and saying I'm, I'm all for diversity and all this stuff. But but I'm not doing that because of the conformity. Mm. I can actually back up what I'm saying. And I will go all the way with that. You see, that's the, the culture of conformity is something is like the flag in the wind. And when the wind blows the other way, I'll go the other way. Which of these, and the, these are kind of twin, twin headed beasts in a way, but yeah. which of these right now in the US from a kind of business or entrepreneurial context do you think is the greater danger right now? The culture of conformity. conformity. Yeah. 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 The other one is, um, is still practice a bit more, but conformity to things that people know are true, and they're saying it's not true. That, knowingly saying that the truth is not the truth. If that's not conformity, I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a heavy obstacle. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm not. My, I'm not a revolutionary. I'm an sure. evolutionary. So for me, this is always about 
one person at a at the time. It's it's telling that Jesus Christ was was received as a as a political king almost into Jerusalem, and he did not take it. What he did instead is to turn to individual people, 12 individuals, 72 individuals, and, and so with the rings around him, individually converting people and showing them the true, the good, and the beautiful and changing their hearts. And so if we want to change the world, we don't go, this is the revolution, but we go one by one by one. Mm. This is why I coach. This is why I teach. This is why I write relationship by the way i'll I'll, uh, I'll i'll share this little brief reflection with you and if it's something you haven't thought about it was brought to my attention in a homily that i heard uh several years back one of my favorite priests an old pastor of mine uh he was preaching on i think it, i think it may have been palm sunday mass but he was preaching on exactly what you mentioned which is the reception of jesus into jerusalem right seated on the the foal of a donkey palm fronds laid at his feet, the cheering yeah. throngs, all of this. A week later, he's being crucified in the most abject, miserable way of any common criminal who had defied the state and everything else, right? That <laughs> happened That happened in five days. Yeah. And, and his, the, the thing that is worth reflecting on, because it ties to some of the things we've been talking about, the way that he, the, the way that he thought about it, just as a point to reflect on was, in those five days— you had the religious leaders, the Pharisees, working hand in glove with the sort of government players, right? The the sort of the you know the soldiers and 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 all of the sort of the apparatus of the state, the Roman state at that point, and that he offered as the potential reason as to why you know this uh, this sort of reception, kingly reception, and suddenly five days later, yeah. this completely different thing was the coming together and the confluence of those two actors in a way that had not happened yet in scripture was, you know, and so when you think about things like how we care for the poor, the homeless, how we, you know, feed the hungry, how we do all these corporal works of mercy, the, the, the association very closely with sort of state and, you know, government actors, the, if you look at it from that point, biblically has some interesting uh, warning signs um, yeah. to, to bear in mind. It's, not an effective tool it's the wrong tool for the for the wrong job yeah and but but the way we do this as individuals is to get together and work on solutions that work nothing is as attractive as success and so there are so many you know i do a whole class on this and i write about it frequently there's so many ex successful examples of enterprise solutions to poverty of enterprise solutions to addiction, of enterprise solutions to homelessness. Um, and so what we need to do is to build them and tell others about it, to spread the word, and it sort of deflates, you know, the government side of things, which it takes time, but it, that's the way to go. Before we, um, we part ways, Andreas, I wanted to let you get a chance to talk about some of the things that you're maybe most excited about, ways that people can keep tabs of what you're doing. I know you uh, most recently published a book called The Art of Principled Entrepreneurship. You've got a number of books, but if people want to find out more about how you view the world, how you see the gospel of work, how you educate your students, or just keep in touch in general, what should they do? So I have a website called andreas 
Widmer or hyphen uh, Andreas hyphen Widmer.com. And then I teach at the Catholic University of America. So you, if, if you type in Catholic University and Widmer, then you find me right away. I'm actually running a center called the, the Sioka Center for Principal Entrepreneurship. I just published a eight part free video series called The Gospel of Work. And that is at siokacenter.com. If you just Google the Gospel of Work videos, you probably find it right away. And there it's free, but you have to go on to Teachable and register and all that. And I do eight sessions of going into depth what we're, of what we're talking about here. And, uh, and then based on that, I'm also, once you register there, I have your email. And then we, the whole team here, we send regular updates and kind of ideas and email newsletters and stuff. And we do a lot of work here. If you're ever in DC, anybody, we, of course, would love to have you send us your students. Um, we also see this, a lot of what we're teaching has to do with mindset mm. and many people's minds are set earlier and earlier. And so we wanted to bring that message into high schools. And so we have a program called the SEED, C-E-D-E, Catholic Entrepreneurship and Design Experience, where we teach my course in high schools and it's, and, and homeschool. So it's, you can do self-directed, you, and a high school can just for free have our course and we trained the trainer there, the teacher there. And the students can dual enroll with Catholic University, but they can also just do it for their own credit. And the SEED program teaches my class basically for high school students. Again, what I always want is high quality, not just if your performance and your visuals and everything needs to be as high quality as the content. Often we have high, like the church has invaluable content and they spend nothing on delivery in low well, resolution sure yeah yeah and low then you've resolution got, and then you've got the and then you've got the other example which is you know everything is high def but when you when you're finished watching it you feel like taking a shower yeah. or you never got any they're all empty calories exactly. and and so we want to make sure that these high school students get high quality content like that is filmed really great and the content is really interesting and so seatprogram.com is that um but you know, and then I'm of course on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and all that. But I'm I do uh, I do LinkedIn more than anything else. Me too. I'm, I'm again. I'm not a. You know, I'm a high tech guy, and I was in software companies all my life. But to me, the, all these things are tools. I, I'm not a native. You know, I don't live there. Uh, but I but I do a lot of um, conferences. I coach people. I, I I talk and I I write and and often that's then distributed through these email uh, mailing lists. Well, we'll include all of that information in the show notes as well for this episode. And I can tell you, I haven't completed it yet, but your APAR course is really good. And it is exactly that kind of combination of high quality with high value, right? So you're not getting uh, HD cotton candy or the most amazing thing, but in standard definition, which are generally the options that we have available to us. So this is right there, right in the middle, really high quality really good stuff. Uh, and we'll include links for that in the show notes. My friend, what a privilege to have you. It's about time. Praise God. Yeah, it's time. You, you've done so much for me. And ne- I, oh, I thank you. I'm a super fan and I, I'm honored that you invited me. Right back at you. And finally, I would say, ti voglio bene. 
right? Ti voglio bene. Ti voglio bene. All right. Well, my friends, uh, if you are listening to Our Voices, that means it is time yet again, once again, to subscribe to this show, to share this particular episode. I know you guys have business people in your life. I know you guys are business folks, so hopefully you got some nuggets from this. But if not, share this episode with that person who can benefit from this idea of building you Inc. as the starting point and leading them to a much more fruitful and flourishing life. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.